You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, History of the Netherlands listeners. Here is a special podcast production. It's an episode that we were invited to make by a company called Tony's Choco Lonely. They're an Amsterdam-based chocolate company, which is on a mission to eradicate modern slavery and make 100% slave-free the norm in chocolate. This, in our opinion, is a very good and necessary thing, so it was our honor to make this episode, which recounts the historical cross-sections where the city of Amsterdam, slavery, and chocolate all come together. As you're listening, keep in mind that we made this for the staff at Tony's Choco Lonely. They wanted to have a way that their staff members could get information about this topic without coming within one and a half meters distance of each other. So we made this episode for them. They are not used to listening to me talk nonstop for 45 plus minutes, as you wonderful people are. So it is done in a bit of a different style, a bit of a different production feel to it bits of music in between and that kind of thing. Nonetheless, we're really proud of it and we hope that you get something out of it as well. Here it is, Dark Chocolate, the history of Amsterdam, chocolate and slavery. On the 18th of June 2020, the Chief Chocolate Officer of Tony's Chocolate Lonely, Hank Jan Beltman, was arrested in Amsterdam for defacing a monumental building. In the early hours of the morning, Together with a graffiti artist, Beltman spray-painted a Black Lives Matter slogan onto the wall of the Burris van Berlache, the historic building that houses a Tony's Chocolonely superstore and chocolate bar. It might seem strange to deface the building in which you have literally set up shop, but Tony's Chocolonely is a company with a vital mission to make 100% slave-free the norm in chocolate production. Beltman's spray-painted message therefore deliberately targeted a statue on the corner of the Burris van Berlake, representing one of the most notorious figures in Dutch colonial history, Jan Pieterzoon Kuhn. When the Burris was constructed between 1896 and 1903, it was designed to be a Gesamtkunstwerk, a total artwork which would pay homage to some of the social and economic ideals of its time. The statues on its corners were built to represent heroes of different periods of Amsterdam's history, with Kuhn representing the city's glorious colonial past. Nowadays, however, Kuhn is recognized as a mass murderer who instigated the genocide and enslavement of tens of thousands of people in Indonesia in the pursuit of a trade monopoly. When speaking to the press after being released by the police without charge, Beltman said, quote, Jan Peterson Kuhn was one of the largest slave traders in our history, which must be indicated with such a statue. We cannot rewrite history, and I am normally not fond of graffiti, but with this action, I hope to keep the social debate going, end quote. Beltman's action was tapping into the current debate raging around the Western world about how we should interpret our histories and recognize past injustices. In Amsterdam, there is a disconnect between the city's famously liberal and progressive identity and the complete history of the city. Because although Amsterdam's transformation from a humble fishing village in the 13th century to the richest city in Europe by the 17th century may have led to liberty, freedom, and fortune for many, Amsterdam's repositioning into the role of colonial master in Asia, Africa, and the Americas came at the expense of the lives and freedom of millions of enslaved and subjugated people, a fact which is only relatively recently being widely acknowledged. In a statement posted on their website explaining Beltman's action, Tony's Chocolonely stated that, quote, we think it is important to highlight the real story behind this statue and to shed light on the Dutch colonial past. We want to make history visible and not shy away from it, 
so that we can learn from it, end quote. Amsterdam is a city which has been involved in the cocoa trade and chocolate production almost since the beans' first introduction into Europe. It is in Amsterdam that the history of modern economics, slavery, and chocolate all intersect, which when taken together can give us a deeper understanding of the complexities which make Amsterdam what it is, which is where this podcast comes in. My name is Joe Wegasani, and I am the host of the History of the Netherlands podcast, a bi-weekly show produced by Republic of Amsterdam Radio, which presents a chronological narrative history of this country. In this podcast special, which we have been invited to make by Tony's Chocolate Only, we are going to delve into the history of Amsterdam's participation in transatlantic slavery and its four-century-long role in the global cocoa and chocolate industries. This will be a story which takes us from places such as Indonesia, Ghana, Curaçao, Suriname, and the Ivory Coast, all the way to the Jordan. First, we will give an overview of Dutch colonial expansion and involvement in the slave trade from the 17th century. Then we will look at how the cocoa bean became intertwined with Amsterdam, and finally how this continues to impact Amsterdam's role in the continued enslavement of people today, and why Tony's mission is so important. Welcome to a History of the Netherlands podcast special, made possible by Team Tony's. This is Dark Chocolate, the story of Amsterdam, cocoa, and slavery. Before we delve into Amsterdam's role in the transatlantic slave trade, it is important to first understand the historical context in which this trade began. While there are entire university courses dedicated towards this, we are going to cover it as quickly as we possibly can. In the 1400s, Europeans began exploring the world by sea. The first European nation to have much success in doing this was Portugal. Portuguese sailors started making landfall in West Africa from the 1430s onwards. In Africa, the Portuguese encountered ancient and established civilizations rich in resources such as gold and ivory. By the turn of the century, the Portuguese had mapped naval routes to India and Southeast Asia, which gave them access to spices such as pepper, cinnamon, cardamom, nutmeg, and cloves. For thousands of years prior to this, these products had only come into Europe via long overland trade routes. The relatively small cartloads of goods would move between the hands of many merchants before they reached the final consumer, by which stage they were too expensive for anyone but the extremely wealthy. But now, Portuguese merchants could buy this stuff cheaply from the source and transport it in much larger quantities, packed tightly into the hulls of ships, resulting in huge profits. This success attracted the attention of other European powers, and Portuguese dominance was soon challenged by Spain. In 1492, a Spanish expedition led by Christopher Columbus, who was searching for a route to India, arrived in the Americas. The European arrival into the Americas marked the beginning of an exchange of goods, people, and diseases between the so-called old and new worlds. Europeans were now suddenly exposed to foods they had never before seen, such as potatoes and tomatoes. But the so-called Columbian Exchange also saw the introduction of diseases like smallpox, measles, and mumps into the Americas, which would tragically wipe out up to 90% of the native peoples there. By the middle of the 1500s, Spain and Portugal were involved in large-scale resource extraction from the Americas. Many Native American people were enslaved by the colonizers and forced to work in plantations and mining operations. However, the devastation of disease to their populations soon saw enslaved Africans being shipped to the Americas to replace their labor. Slavery is an ancient worldwide institution, with the practice being described as already long established in some of the oldest texts ever found, such as the Code of Hammurabi, which dates back to around 1750 BCE. Slavery was common in Southern Europe, where conflicts between Christians and Muslims had seen these groups enslaving each other. 
Like in Europe, the African slave trade is believed to have been a product of war and conquest between rival local groups and entities. When the Portuguese first sailed to Africa, raiding parties would kidnap people to take back to Europe, but eventually they reached agreements with African power brokers to trade goods for enslaved people. What emerged was a triangular trade in which manufactured goods, such as bricks, tools and guns, were brought from Europe to be traded for enslaved people in Africa. These people would be violently packed onto ships, taken mainly to the Americas, and forced to work in hard and dangerous labour, or as servants, or as sex slaves, or in any other way that the people who bought and sold them decided. Raw products from their labour, initially mostly sugar, silver, and gold, but eventually also coffee, cotton, tobacco, indigo, cocoa, and more, were then shipped off to Europe, where they would be sold for profit, and used to manufacture new goods, many of which would then be taken to Africa to purchase more enslaved people. It is estimated that between the years 1500 and 1866, around 12.5 million people were forcibly shipped from Africa to the Americas, roughly 15% of whom died while making the voyage. The entire modern economic system that emerged was lubricated by the work and suffering of enslaved people. Before we get stuck into the economic, social and political impacts of all this, let's try to comprehend what an enslaved person must have gone through from the moment of capture through to their arrival in the Americas. Unfortunately, very few first-hand accounts written by the people who went through this trauma have survived. One story that has been documented, however, is that of Otaba Kugoana, a man from the town of Ajamako in modern-day Ghana, who in 1770, at the age of 13, was kidnapped and sold into slavery. Kugoana's account tells how he had gone into the forest one day with some acquaintances to collect fruit and catch birds when, quote, several great ruffians came upon us suddenly and said we had committed a fault against their lord and we must go and answer for it ourselves before him. Some of us attempted in vain to run away, but pistols and cutlasses were soon introduced, threatening that if we offered to stir, we should all lie dead on the spot. End quote. After being ensured by a friendly capturer that as long as they were well behaved and obedient, he would ensure their release, Kugoana and the others were marched for a couple of weeks to a fort by the coast, during which time he refused to eat, when he became certain that he would never see his family again. Upon arrival at the fort, quote, The horrors I soon saw and felt cannot be well described. I saw many of my miserable countrymen chained two and two, some handcuffed and some with their hands tied behind. We were conducted along by a guard, and when we arrived at the castle, I asked my guide what I was brought there for. He told me to learn the ways of the browfowl, that is, the white-faced people. I saw him take a gun, a piece of cloth, and some lead for me, and then he told me that he must now leave me there, and went off. This made me cry bitterly, but I was soon conducted to a prison for three days where I heard the groans and cries of many and saw some of my fellow captives. But when a vessel arrived to conduct us away to the ship, it was a most horrible scene. There was nothing to be heard but the rattling of chains, smacking of whips, and the groans and cries of our fellow men. End quote. Kugoana's journey across the Atlantic Ocean, the so-called Middle Passage, was no less horrifying, with his account describing in detail the overcrowded and unsanitary conditions which enslaved Africans had to endure. Things became so desperate that at one point they began to plot a mutiny against their capturers. Quote, Death was more preferable than life, and a plan was concerted amongst us that we might burn and blow up the ship and to perish altogether in the flames. But we were betrayed by one of our own countrywomen who slept with some of the headmen of the ship, for it was common for the dirty, filthy sailors to take the African women and lie upon their bodies, but the men were chained and pent up in holes. It was the women and boys which were to burn the ship, 
with the approbation and groans of the rest, though that was prevented. The discovery was likewise a cruel, bloody scene. End quote. When Kuguana finally arrived in the Caribbean, he was sold and forced to work on a sugar plantation in Granada. He wrote of this, quote, For eating a piece of sugarcane, some were cruelly lashed or struck over the face to knock their teeth out. Some of the stouter ones, I suppose, often reproved and grown hardened and stupid with many cruel beatings and lashings, or perhaps faint and pressed with hunger and hard labour, were often committing trespasses of this kind, and when detected, they met with exemplary punishment. Some told me they had their teeth pulled out to deter others and to prevent them from eating any cane in the future. End quote. Kuguanas is just one of the more than 12 million stories of people who, against their will, were sent by Europeans from Africa to the Americas, bought and sold as property, and forced to work. In many places, the children of enslaved people were also considered to be the property of master enslavers, meaning that this suffering extended across generations. It is important to remember, throughout the rest of this podcast, that those who were enslaved were not just numbers in a spreadsheet, nor the economic commodities they were viewed as. They were real people with their own individual lives and stories, hopes and aspirations. As Spain and Portugal were establishing themselves in the Americas, a set of territories in northwestern Europe, collectively known as the Low Countries, came under the rule of the Spanish king, Philip II. By the 1570s, large parts of this region had gone into revolt against Spanish imperial rule and had risen up in rebellion. This conflict became a war of independence, known to history as the Eighty Years' War. By the end of the 1500s, although the struggle against Spain continued, the northern low countries, which roughly correspond to what we would see as the Netherlands today, had put themselves in a position to operate as an independent entity. What emerged was a productive, commerce-based republic, which although extremely small in comparison to the major European powers, made better and greater quantities of ships than any other. Merchants around Europe began to see the winds of fortune blowing towards the new Dutch Republic, with its access to the sea as well as internal European waterways. Large-scale immigration and an influx of capital soon followed. Amsterdam more than doubled in size and quickly became the richest city in Europe. From this point, any discussion of merchants from Amsterdam or the Netherlands can refer to merchants who hailed from all corners of Europe and even the world. Prior to the revolt, the Low Countries had been firmly plugged into the trade systems of Spain and Portugal, which meant that Dutch officers, merchants, sailors, and mercenaries had long been operating on Iberian ships and in colonies. Due to the war, however, Dutch merchants found themselves blocked from Spanish and Portuguese ports. Concerned about this, Amsterdam merchants sent a man named Cornelis de Houtman to Lisbon, where he spent two years acting as a state-sponsored spy, collecting information on Portuguese sea routes. At the same time, another Dutchman, Jan Huygen van Linskouter, secretary to the Portuguese archbishop in Goa, copied maps of Asia, which the Portuguese had successfully kept secret for the past century. He then had them published in the Netherlands. Thus, the opportunity arose for the people of this brand new nation to get in on the Asian trade networks. Multiple small trading companies sprung into existence, but vying for limited resources naturally caused competition between them, which cut into all of their collective profits. In 1602, the Dutch East India Company, or the VOC, was created to counter this by merging the competing Dutch companies together to share the risks and the rewards. The VOC was the world's first conglomerate and would become the wealthiest company of all time. It is not without reason that it has long been celebrated as a peak achievement in Dutch history. The VOC was given immense government-granted powers and a monopoly over the Asian trade. 
VOC ships could carry armed forces, and their officers, merchants, and administrators could establish trading posts, negotiate and sign treaties, and declare and wage war. Its creation changed global economics. The limited liability company was born, where ownership was spread beyond the single responsibility of one or a few people, with their shares being sold publicly. The creation of the VOC resulted in the emergence of the modern stock exchange and trading on speculation. Within a decade, Amsterdam city planner Hendrik de Keyser had built a new Koopmansbörs, an exchange building that became an iconic symbol for the following two centuries of world finance. By the 1830s, the Koopmansbörs had become structurally unsound, so was replaced by another building, the Börs van Zocher, which by the beginning of the 20th century would itself be replaced by the Börs van Berlacher. The archipelagos of Indonesia became the focus of VOC operations, and of particular interest were the Moluccas, or the Spice Islands. In 1609, a VOC fleet arrived in the Banda Islands in the Moluccas, which were the source of all the world's nutmeg. The VOC commander, Peter Willemzoon Verhoof, wanted to build a fort on the central island of Neira, and demanded that the Bandanese only supply nutmeg to the Dutch. The local Bandanese ruling elite lured him and two of his officers into an ambush and had them killed. They then massacred over 40 of the remaining VOC soldiers with others being forced to flee. The reprisal from the rest of the VOC fleet was swift and brutal, and among the register of individuals involved are some pretty big names in Dutch history, such as the man whose statue at the Burst van Berlacher we mentioned earlier, Jan Pieterzoon Kuhn, as well as another named Piet Hein, who we will meet again later on the other side of the world. VOC forces set about sweeping through the Banda Islands, destroying villages and resources and killing many inhabitants. Soon they extracted a favourable treaty from some of the Bandanese ruling elite and built their fortress in Neira. But despite this, other European powers remained present there too. The VOC had not been able to force the English away from the Banda Islands, nor stop local traders from selling to the Portuguese. In 1614, Jan Peterson Kuhn was appointed governor of the East Indies, and by October 1620, the highest administrators of the VOC, the most powerful of whom were in Amsterdam, agreed with his assessment that, quote, to adequately deal with this matter, it is necessary to once again subjugate Banda and populate it with other people, end quote. So in March 1621, Dutch forces led by Kuhn landed on the biggest island, Lontor, and forced the inhabitants to flee into the hills. The ruling Lontor elite quickly surrendered and submitted to Kuhn's demand for a trade monopoly. Those who had fled into the interior continued a fierce resistance, however, so VOC forces set about subjugating, torturing, exterminating, and starving them. Many were driven to suicide. Kuhn himself put the number of Lontorese deaths at around 2,500, saying that only 300 escaped. From that point, the VOC could spread its control over the rest of the Banda Islands, using the same violent approach on each of them. It will never be possible to know exactly how many Bandanese died in total, but recent estimates suggest around 15,000 people lost their lives, with perhaps only about 1,000 surviving. Those who remained were enslaved and forced to work by their new Dutch masters. The VOC brought in enslaved people from other regions in Asia and made the surviving Bandanese teach them how to grow and produce nutmeg and its byproduct, mace. That aforementioned statue of Kuhn on the Burris van Berlacher features the words Disparirt Neat, which are the first two words of his personal motto, disparirt neat, 
ontziet uw vijanden niet, want God is met ons. Roughly translated into English, this means, do not despair, do not spare your enemies, for God is with us. In 1621, the same year the Dutch extinguished the freedom of the Bandanese, their own fight for independence from Spain reignited when a 12-year truce ended. Political heavyweights in the Dutch Republic knew that the war effort relied on their continued commercial strength around the world, giving them income while also minimizing the colonial holdings and resources of Spain. In that year, the West India Company, or the WIC, was formed, which they hoped would play the same role as the VOC, but west of Africa. In 1623, plans were made for the WIC to establish a foothold in Africa and the Americas, with which they could control sugarcane production and the slave trade. This plan was called the Groot Design, the Grand Design. Two months after this plan was hatched, a Dutch fleet left the Low Countries and in May 1624, they attacked and captured the Portuguese city of Salvador in Brazil. From there, another Dutch force was assembled and under the command of Piet Hein, the man we met earlier in the Banda Islands, they set sail for Africa with the intention of taking a Portuguese fort in Luanda, modern-day Angola. Although this failed, it represents the first attempt to bring African slave markets into the Dutch sphere of influence. Four years later, Piet Hein, who had been promoted to Admiral for the West Indies Company, made himself a national hero by capturing and stealing the Spanish treasure fleet, which was carrying all the valuable metals and goods the Spanish had recently taken from the Americas. Hein brought home over 11.5 million guilders of booty to his homeland. It is this for which he is most remembered, rather than his involvement in the violent subjugation of people in Africa and Asia, and why he still gets tunnels and other things named after him. When the captured treasure fleet arrived in the Netherlands at the beginning of 1629, it took more than a week for all of the booty, which included hundreds of thousands of pounds of silver, pearls, animal hides, and many other precious items, to be unloaded and transported to Amsterdam. One item in this hoard whose future importance was no doubt overshadowed by all that shiny silver was the cocoa bean. Although it would remain a fairly obscure product for a while longer, it was at this moment that the paths of cocoa and Amsterdam began to intertwine. The cocoa bean had already been known to and used by humans for millennia before Europeans were introduced to it. Native to the Amazon basin, traces of it have been found in pottery from the Olmec people who lived in today's Mexico more than two and a half thousand years ago. Various Mesoamerican cultures had different ways in which they would prepare it for consumption. Commonly, it was mixed with various spices to create a drink which would be served either hot or cold. Due to its valuable nature, it was often reserved for the nobility, but it would also be given to soldiers in their rations because of its stimulating properties. But although cocoa was highly valued in the Americas, the first European impressions of it were less appreciative. When Columbus first presented it to Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain, they were much more interested in the other treasures which he had brought. But after Hernán Cortés returned to Spain with the necessary knowledge of how to prepare the drink, and this was presented to the court of Charles V, the drink began to catch on. By crushing it and mixing it with other luxury products, such as sugar, pepper, honey, vanilla, and cinnamon, to hide the bitterness and improve the taste, it soon became popular with the Spanish nobility and social elite, who could afford it. As drinking chocolate started to spread throughout Europe, the recipe for preparing the beans was kept secret so as to maintain the Spanish monopoly on cocoa for as long as possible. Many plantations were created in the Americas, particularly in the area around the Orinoco River in today's Venezuela, which used enslaved people for the required labor. 
The injection of money the Dutch war chest received from the Spanish treasure fleet meant that the Republic could take a second crack at the Groot design. What followed was a string of Dutch victories throughout Africa and the Americas, followed by a desperate and mostly unsuccessful attempt to defend their new holdings. At the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, the war against Spain ended and the independence of the Dutch Republic was officially recognized by its neighbors. But things were not peaceful for long. What awaited this new republic was a series of naval wars against England and a consistent threat from France. From this point, Dutch colonial ambitions in the Atlantic world focused on Curaçao, an island off the coast of Venezuela, on Suriname and Elmina in today's Ghana. European presence in Elmina began in 1478 when Portuguese forces took over the region around a town called Anomansa on the southern coast of today's Ghana. Here they built a castle which they named São Jorge de Mina, St. George of the Mine, and the town around it quickly expanded. Soon both would be known as Elmina, indicative of the value put on the gold mines in the region. Although this entire area became known as the Gold Coast, much of the gold was actually mined further into the interior of the continent. The Portuguese and other Europeans set up forts similar to Elmina all along this section of the West African coast. These turned into hubs from which they would trade with middlemen, who connected them to local rulers and kingdoms further inland and who had access to the much sought after gold. It is estimated that during the peak of the gold trade in the 16th century, as much as 10% of the world's annual supply of gold was being sent to Europe from the Gold Coast. The Dutch had first set themselves up in the area by building a commercial relationship with the local kingdom of Asabu, who according to one story had sent an embassy to Holland inviting them to build a fort in a town called Maori in 1611, which became known as Fort Nassau. But the real prize for the Dutch came in 1637, when they successfully captured Elmina, which became the headquarters of the West Indies Company on the Gold Coast. After taking Elmina, they moved east and proceeded to conquer a bunch of other Portuguese holdings. Treaties were continually made and remade between the Dutch West India Company and local African states and rulers to ensure that friendly commercial relations could exist between them. In this sense, the Dutch colonial authorities saw more benefit in maintaining these relationships than trying to supplant the local African authorities with whom they traded. For over 200 years, the West Indies Company authorities and then the Dutch private and government entities that took over from it would include local leaders in discussions and negotiations, encourage and sponsor local festivals, and remain mindful of local cultural sensibilities, all in the name of making their business there as lucrative and hassle-free for themselves as possible. Which sounds like good modern business acumen. Except for when you remember that aside from gold, the other important business taking place between the West Indies Company and these local African rulers was the trade of enslaved people. The castles along the coast were modified to hold those who had been captured. Their dungeons, cells and holding yards, in which people were beaten, raped and tortured, would signify the last memories which hundreds of thousands of people would have of their homeland before being sent across the Atlantic Ocean. Otaba Kuguano, whose words and experience we spoke about earlier, spent the earlier days of his enslavement in just such a castle as Elmina. At the height of this trade, 30,000 people annually were sent from Elmina to the Americas. One of the most powerful remaining symbols of the slave trade in Elmina Castle today is the so-called Door of No Return, the final door through which people were forced to walk before they were loaded onto ships. A plaque at Elmina reads, quote, In everlasting memory of the anguish of our ancestors, may those who died rest in peace, may those who return find their roots. May humanity never again perpetrate such injustice against humanity. We, the living, vow to uphold this.
The island of Curaçao, just north of Venezuela, became the most important Dutch entrepot in the Caribbean for enslaved people arriving from Africa. The Dutch took Curaçao from the Spanish in 1634, though must have been disappointed when they found it was bad for agriculture with poor soil and little regular rainfall. It was, however, in an ideal commercial location and had a large harbour which allowed it to connect into the growing economic network of trade and slavery throughout the Americas. From Curaçao, Dutch and foreign merchants sent boats towards other European colonies in the region, establishing a complex trade network. Nearby Venezuela produced three main goods, tobacco, animal hides, and more than anything else, cocoa beans. In theory, all of the products from Spain's colonies were supposed to go through the Casa de la Contratación in Sevilla, meaning that local farmers and colonists would have to wait for the twice-yearly treasure convoys to be able to sell their products. You can imagine how tempting it would be to illegally sell to a Dutch ship which showed up in between those times. For this reason, Curaçao became one of the largest gateways by which smuggled products entered and exited Spanish colonies. The West Indies Company confirmed this in 1675 when they turned the main town, Willemstad, into a free port, meaning that traders in the region of all different nationalities had more incentive to deal with the Dutch than the Spanish, French or English. By the 1660s, Curaçao, with rampant contraband and illegal silver currency flowing through its markets, became the place where enslaved people were exchanged for the products which many of them would be forced to produce. For example, in 1756, one Dutch ship, the Prince Willem Fife, sold enslaved people for the rate of 110 pesos per person, which was paid for in cocoa beans and animal hides. Even though enslaved people were forced to labour in the production of many different things, the connection between the cocoa bean, Amsterdam and slavery would begin establishing itself at this point in history. Since much of the activity in Curaçao was done illegally, it is impossible to know exactly how much cocoa was being traded from Venezuela to Dutch markets, but one estimate is that up to half of the total cocoa production from Caracas ended up in Amsterdam. Historian Wim Closer even suggests that Spanish traders would sometimes be forced to sail to Amsterdam to buy the cocoa which had been grown in their own colonies. The other important source of cocoa beans for the Dutch would be Suriname. In February 1667, a Dutch force of seven ships led by Abraham Kreinsen from Vlissingen, Zeeland, invaded and took the English-controlled Fort Willoughby in the Guyanas, north of Brazil. Five months later, a peace treaty was signed between the Dutch and English in which they agreed to each just keep their current holdings. Willoughby Land was renamed Suriname, and the existing sugar plantations, along with their systems of enslavement, were claimed by the Dutch province of Zeeland. The Zeelanders ran into immediate difficulties as they were attacked by so-called Maroons. Maroons were communities of people who had escaped enslavement by fleeing into the hinterlands, where they often mixed with local indigenous inhabitants. They were prepared to violently defend their freedom, and after a decade of troubles, Zeeland decided to relinquish control of Suriname to the West India Company. The West India Company was not keen on taking on the costs of running the colony alone, so in 1683, the Society of Suriname was established, which split ownership of the territory between three parties, the West India Company, the Van Arsen van Sommelsdijk family, and the city of Amsterdam. This gave Amsterdam merchants access to Suriname and means that the city of Amsterdam itself, as an entity, was directly and deliberately one-third owner of thousands of enslaved people. When Cornelis van Arsen van Sommelsdijk became a one-third owner of the Society of Suriname, he also became the first governor of the colony. He took his wife, children and household retinue and set off for Suriname. 
There, he spent the next five years trying to sort through the messy internal politics of the 1500 or so colonists. There is a story that in 1684, some Dutch convicts in Suriname escaped on a stolen ship and made their way to the Orinoco River in Venezuela. Apparently, the second son of Van Arsen van Sommelsdijk, Francois, tracked them down, caught them, and brought them back. But with him, he also brought back some cocoa beans. Along with sugar and coffee, cocoa would now be grown in Suriname plantations and exported back to Amsterdam. The late 18th and 19th centuries saw many social and governmental developments in Europe and in the European colonies in the Americas, which would eventually lead to the end of the transatlantic slave trade. It is important to recognize that enslaved people had themselves been struggling for their freedom since the beginnings of this chapter in history, when enslaved people in the French Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue read texts coming out of the mother country proclaiming things like the universal rights of man, they took the radical step of insisting that things like liberty, equality, and fraternity must also apply to them too. In many ways, the revolt in Saint-Domingue, which kicked off in 1791, mirrored the French and American revolutions in the ideals being espoused by many of the rebellion's leaders, such as Toussaint Louverture. What was different in Saint-Domingue, however, is that although the revolt started amidst a white middle class, it was soon characterized by thousands of black and colored peoples freeing themselves from European rule and ending slavery there. The Haitian Revolution, as it would come to be known, represents the largest slave uprising since the Roman era and provided ample evidence that enslaved people could and would emancipate themselves. Different countries had their own struggles with achieving emancipation, generally first moving to end the trade of enslaved people before abolishing the entire system of slavery itself. The Netherlands was not among the leading nations in doing this. The Dutch Republic was invaded by French revolutionaries in 1795 and became a client state of France, known as the Batavian Republic. When news of this reached Curaçao, an enslaved man named Tulla, fully aware of and inspired by what was happening in Haiti, argued that all enslaved people in places under French rule were promised their freedom. A month-long uprising and guerrilla war followed, which ended after Tula was betrayed, captured, tortured in public, and along with other leaders, executed. The trade in enslaved people was not banned in the Netherlands until 1814, and this only came about because of British pressure to end it. Slavery itself, however, continued in Dutch colonies for almost half a century longer. Suriname and the Antilles were rife with acts of rebellion, protest, and escape attempts by enslaved people in those final years. Many also found ways of convincing their masters to release them or to buy their own freedom. Events like Tula's uprising and the Haitian Revolution left master enslavers terrified at the prospect and consequences of slave uprisings. So there were definitely self-preservation aspects to emancipation for many white settlers. In 1833, 43% of Curaçao's population was actually composed of free, black, or mixed-race people. But by the end of 1863, finally, all enslaved people in Suriname, Curaçao, and the other Dutch colonial territories were free. Well, sort of. Technically. But not really. The global economic system was so wrapped up in slavery as an institution that resistance to emancipation was often based on economic arguments. On top of the agenda was how master enslavers were to be financially compensated for their perceived loss of property. Once again, enslaved people were noted only as economic commodities. Master enslavers in the Netherlands were paid 300 guilders per emancipated person, which equates to roughly 3,300 euros in today's money. And how much did the formerly enslaved people themselves receive? 
for their years and lifetimes of unpaid labour? Zero. The racism of general opinion at the time also assumed that enslaved people, once freed, would be too lazy to set about making something of their lives. The Dutch government's solution was to force the now free people to continue working for another 10 years, often on the very same plantation they had been bound to. The hardship of this was compounded when plantation owners paid their so-called employees a pittance, but were no longer obliged to provide them with food or shelter. Around the same time that emancipation was being discussed in the halls of power in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam in 1828, a man named Kasperus van Houten changed the world of chocolate forever when he patented a specialised way to press roasted cocoa beans. Kasperus had been running a chocolate company from the Anjeliersgracht in Amsterdam's Jordaan neighbourhood for 20 years. His invention allowed much of the fat in cocoa beans to be removed, producing a dense mass which could be pulverised to create cocoa powder, which was much easier to mix into a drink. Kasperus's son, Kunrad, a chemist, furthered his father's work by figuring out that if he used alkaline salts to treat the crushed cocoa powder, it reduced the acidity and bitterness of the product and made it even more soluble. Even better, it mixed with sugar more easily. The Van Houten's patent for the press expired after 10 years, allowing other chocolatiers to begin using it. Further discoveries in the biz included mixing the cocoa fat back in and adding milk. This all led to the creation of solid chocolate blocks and chocolate paste. Essentially, the processes discovered by the Van Houten's became the processes by which most modern forms of chocolate are made. It is so Dutch, it is literally either called Dutching or Dutch pressed chocolate. Once again, Amsterdam was right at the centre of the chocolate industry. Dutching made chocolate production much more cost effective and the industry grew greatly throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Around the turn of the century, it became cheaper for companies to run plantations in Asia and, notably, Africa as compared to the Americas, and the geography of cocoa bean production shifted accordingly. Indeed, although the age of colonialism and European exploitation of Africa, Asia, and the Americas would come to an end in the 20th century, the economic system that was built from the enslavement of millions still very much exists. The capitalist pursuit of profit searches for the cheapest resources which are available, which is why, unfortunately, the exploitation of people continues and modern slavery exists. Today, around two-thirds of the world's cocoa beans are grown in West Africa, particularly in Ghana and the Ivory Coast. Unlike in colonial times when plantations were vast and owned by big foreign individuals and companies, these days the cocoa plantations are smaller and mainly owned by local Ghanaians and Ivorians. Around 2.1 million children are estimated to be working illegally in the cocoa industry in those two countries. This is often instead of going to school and almost always in back-breaking, hot and difficult conditions where they are forced to spend many hours a day dangerously wielding machetes and carrying heavy hampers of cocoa beans. It is estimated that around 30,000 enslaved people, including adults and children, work on cocoa plantations in the Ivory Coast and Ghana, the same region from which Europeans sent millions of enslaved people through doors of no return for centuries, is the major modern source of the product most associated with the continued enslavement of people. No major chocolate producer can guarantee 100% slave-free chocolate. Such is the insidious connection between slavery and the cocoa industry. Amsterdam is still the largest importer of cocoa beans in the world. The cocoa trade is such a part of the city's identity that the official Port of Amsterdam website 
proudly displays a map and list of the cocoa bean storing companies that it hosts. Perhaps this could be looked at as a modern-day version of the statue of Jan Peterson Kuhn on the Burris van Berlacher. We think it's a great symbol of prosperity now, but will our descendants agree in the future? Europeans of the 17th and 18th centuries happily consumed the products of brutal slave labour without having to see the suffering which went into making them. Every time we enjoy chocolate today, we do the exact same thing. Which is why the mission of Tony's Chocolate Only to achieve 100% slavery-free chocolate worldwide is so difficult, but also so important. The end of legal slavery did not come about easily or with the consent of everybody. It took rebellion on the part of the enslaved themselves, as well as a growth in public awareness and activism. This is still the case today, as we strive to end modern slavery in all its forms. It takes awareness and activism. And those are two pillars upon which Tony's Chocolate Only has been built, but upon which all of us together can stand. Thanks for listening to this special episode of History of the Netherlands. If you want to hear more episodes of our podcast, you can find it by searching for History of the Netherlands on whatever podcast platform you use. Check out our website, www.republicofamsterdamradio.com, where you can also find more projects which we have created. Thanks a lot to Team Tonys for your work, your support, and above all, for caramel sea salt chocolate. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.